Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the premiere of Secret Invasion, streaming now on Disney+. Plus. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion. And I'm Rosie Knight. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode, in the previously on, we're talking about Neil Kirby's comments on the new Stan Lee documentary. That's Neil Kirby, the son of Jack Kirby, famed Marvel creator. In the airlock, it's a secret invasion premiere. And in the nerd out, a rebuttal on whether Coach Ben should have burned down the cabin in Yellow Jackets season two finale. Controversial. Can't wait to hear that one. And we'll also be talking about another Marvel story that's been making the internet talk today, which is the AI controversy over the secret invasion opening credits. Coming up previously on. First up, let's talk about Neil Kirby's comments, son, Marvel Comics artist, writer, all around comics legend Jack Kirby, which expressed the dismay at the framing of Stanley's involvement in the creation of various Marvel Comics icons, but most notably Spider-Man, that appeared in the new Stanley documentary on Disney Plus, which is titled simply Stanley. Not quite a documentary, but we can talk about that in a second. Yeah. Essentially, Stanley's position always was one, that he was willing to say that Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, those two co-created Spider-Man. But he was only willing to say that as a weird, like, olive branch to make them happy. But when pressed on the issue, he would always say, well, I... I thought of it, so I invented it. I thought of it, therefore I am the sole creator of Spider-Man. Now here is Neil's statement in part, it says, it should be noted and is generally accepted that Stanley... This is such a fucking wild way to open I just want to say... This is years in the making. This is years of controversy. I will give you a little bit of an insight into it when we talk about it. But this is Neil after having to go through the legal system to get money for the things that his father created, including uh, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four. Like basically Thor, every superhero that you like from Marvel was partially created probably by Jack Kirby and alongside Stan Lee. So it is going to sound pretty angry. But there's context for it. And by the way, before we get into the opening salvos of the statement, which again are crazy, it's important to note that comics being a visual medium mm-hmm. are naturally going to be a collaboration between artist and writer. Like Stan could say, hey, a guy with spider powers, and maybe we call him Spider-Man. Exactly. In order for him to be sole creator, he would probably also have to say, and the costume looks like this. And I'm going to draw it. 
and I'm going to draw it. And I've decided the webbing's going to the arms like this. And no, like the rest of it. Yeah, you had the idea, but then other people move the ball down the field. And even I will say as well, the question of what ideas Stan had are very controversial. For example, as Neil gets into here, it is highly understood now decades later that jack kirby invented the fantastic four and based them on the challenges of the unknown right but even in the new documentary in inverted commas that disney plus released called stan lee they have stan saying that he invented them he created the characters so even that idea of who came up with the idea is still very much contested well i think it is generally accepted in terms of the fantastic four that stan said something like Hey, it would be cool if there was a superhero family. No, 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 no. There's letters from Stan and stuff now. The Fantastic Four one is very deep because, as Neil points out, they're essentially based on challenges of the unknown, which was something that Jack had done already at DC. And not just that, but the characters are named after people that were close to Jack Kirby. So Stan has always said he wanted to do like a team, but it's unclear whether... This one is one of the most contested, the Fantastic Four. Well, here is Neil's statement in part. Quote, it should be noted and is generally accepted that Stan Lee had a limited knowledge of history, mythology, or science. Things that Jack Kirby loved. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, listen, I'm largely on Jack's and Steve Ditko's side here, but that is like, you're basically saying like, hey, everybody knows Stan Lee didn't read. (laughs) I will say, and this actually comes across in the documentary, Stan built a lot of his career on basically saying he was ashamed of comics and that comics weren't adult and comics weren't deep and failed novelists and failed novelists would write comics and that comics were not serious. So I think that what Neil did here that I, I really love about this statement as someone who's written quite extensively on this, he went at it in an academic framework and used the mythology, which Jack was so keen on. We talked previously about his like wild DC stuff, new gods, right? So like Neil saying, look, Stan probably didn't like this stuff as much as my dad. So who do you think was calling on Norse mythology? Who do you think was calling on these kind of archetypal tropes that came from decades and centuries of lore? It was probably my dad. And he goes real academic with it. It's pretty wild. The statement continues, on the other hand, my father's knowledge of these subjects, to which I and many others can personally attest, was extensive. Einstein summed it up better, more the knowledge, lesser the ego, lesser the knowledge, more the ego, which I'll just say makes it seem like Einstein was weighing in on Jack Kirby versus (laughs) Stanley. I probably would have scrubbed that mention if I was Neil's editor, a little bit of a weird ad here. It was posted on his Twitter by his daughter, so probably no editor. Yeah. Um, uh, It continues. You will see Lee's name as a co-creator on every character with the exception of the Silver Surfer, solely created by my father. Are we to assume Lee had a hand in creating every Marvel character? Are we to assume that it was never the other co-creator that walked into Lee's office and that Stan, I have a great idea for a character? According to Lee, it was always his idea. That's absolutely the case. Here's a tweet by Brian Cronin, a great Mm -hmm. uh, comics historian who works over at CBR, has written, I've referred to personally in my own research to his articles many 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 a time he does a great like comic book legends where he breaks down like yes famous myths and are they true and how did they happen and yeah he knows extensively about this he stuff. knows his stuff and he uh you know here's a thread and a snippet of an article that he posted several days ago in response to this uh, he wrote, quote, here's a Stanley thing that always amazes me he was stuck on the idea that he was a sole creator of spider-man because he quote 
came up with the ideas, despite obviously not being the one who came up with the idea of doing a comic book called Spider-Man. Can you even imagine that? And then he posts a, a, a snippet of a conversation that Stanley had with Jonathan Ross, in which Ross asks, but do you believe Steve Ditko co-created Spider-Man? And Stanley says, I'm willing to say so. Ross, that's not what I'm asking you. Lee, no, that's the best answer I can give you. So it's a no then, really. Lee, no, I really think the guy who dreams the thing up created it. You dream it up and then you give it to somebody to draw it. Now, that's not how it works, but... uh... That's literally a quote they use in the Disney documentary or in Stan's voice. And I think that I was really happy to see how much this was reported on because this was just shared through Jillian uh, Kirby, Neil's daughter's Twitter account. She shared this very long phrasing and rebuttal that Neil posted and I think it's everyone should read it it's really important and it's really great to see it in variety in THR to see people like Guillermo del Toro Brian Cronin coming forward and talking about the realities of this no one is trying to take away Stanley's legacy he did a very good job over his long Mm -hmm. life of building that legacy and Marvel and especially Marvel Studios both comics and the films have helped him build it he took on a very famous role at one point chairman emeritus where he just got paid a wage to essentially be like a spokesperson for marvel and promote the marvel brand and in doing that he built a legend and law for himself that he was a sole creator and while that was almost something of just a personal mythos stan also spoke at depositions in the favor of Marvel and against his creators getting rights, getting original art and getting money. So he did end up doing this on the backs of other people. And that's why someone like Neil has such a personal investment in this. Because while like me and you, we talk about Jack Kirby all the time. I feel like since Thor Ragnarok, there's been a more wide appreciation of Kirby and his influence. Mm -hmm. It did take decades to get there, including a very long lawsuit that ended up with a settlement between Marvel and the Kirby family, because something that people might not know is that when these creators were creating these characters, they were not working under what we call work for hire agreements. So these characters were created and the people who created them actually did have some kind of claim to them. But as happened with Siegel and Schuster and Superman, in the case of Marvel, those characters essentially ended up becoming the property of Marvel due to payment agreements that they made. A lot of the creators actually had to just sign over those rights to get their checks. Yeah. And that happened in the 70s. So there is a lot of history here. And I I watched the documentary. I actually found that it was quite sad. Mm-hmm. That was kind of how I felt about it. It even made me feel quite sad for Stan. And I've I've written quite extensively about this history and and his role in the way that creators were treated at Marvel. But I think Neil was right to do this. And I think that everyone should watch the documentary because I think it actually doesn't paint Stan in the light that I'm sure Disney Plus wanted them to Mm -hmm. because it is all told in his own words. So you can catch a lot of the contradictions that he would say and the way he would change these stories. But it's very interesting to see people talking about this and recognizing it and having conversations now with a more literate audience, like you pointed out. When you read that Jonathan Ross interview quote, you just know if you read comics, that's just not how it is. Like you have to be able to draw to claim, you know, you're the sole creator. Yeah. And I think more broadly speaking, in creative collaboration, Mm -hmm. there is no scientific way to 
in all cases, accurately gauge what a person's influence on a particular project that is created through creative collaboration is at any given time. If Stan says, okay, I have Spider-Man, then gives it to Steve and Jack and they draw it up, you've got to figure out a way to split that that is going to probably make somebody feel bad in order for it to be equitable. Like, I personally think you've just got to come somewhere to 50-50 and stuff like Mm -hmm. this. Now, somebody's going to feel like, well, I did more work and I brought this person in and that's always the way it works with this stuff. But there's just no way to accurately do it. Somebody has to be the person who says, let's just share it. Yeah, a lot. Exactly. I actually think it sounds so simple, but that's what was missing a lot of the time. Like A lot of what the documentary focuses on when it does bring this stuff up is Stan's reaction to it. And sadly, his reaction was, I am the sole creator. I came up with these ideas. And that then creates this cycle where people are unfairly pushed out of crediting. And especially with Spider-Man is a really great example. So Steve Ditko is now seen as the co-creator of Spider-Man. And before he passed away, you know, he was very isolated. He he kept to himself. He did a lot of great self-publishing, a lot of which spoke about his issues with Stanley. But he ended up getting checks from Spider-Man. He kind of got a little bit more of that equity. But Spider-Man was originally drawn by Jack Kirby, as you pointed out. And then Stan didn't like the way it looked. But allegedly, there are also a version of the story where Jack had come up with that idea before with Joe Simon about a Spider-Man character. And then there is the very controversial fact that the Spider-Man costume looks like a costume that a Halloween company had been making. So there's all this kind of blurry conversation around it that comes from the fact that these were stories being made for what was seen as a disposable medium for kids that people were getting paid like no money to write and draw And it's kind of funny to now have to extrapolate this when it's about like a billion dollar project. I think the thing to your point that's sad about this for me is setting aside all of Stanley's self-aggrandizement, just the stuff that you can absolutely say with authority that Stanley was responsible for that. The the promotion of comics and Marvel Mm -hmm. in particular. The advocacy. Steve Ditko, you mentioned, was a you know, was a uh, Anne Randian shut-in who had no inclination to be the front-facing salesman for comics. He didn't even want them to publish pictures of him. There's barely any. Jack Kirby was a kind of rough-and-tumble guy who did not have the kind of charm and, like, eagerness to hobnob that Stanley had. That's, like, not nothing being the promotional guy for comics and coming up with a lot of, you know, he did come up with a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of the ideas. And while the Marvel method was created ad hoc mm-hmm. to deal with <laughs> the, what the structure of Marvel was mm-hmm. at the time, it was not like a strategized system. Um, it, it also gave him like tremendous influence in the stories that were created. So I think what's sad about this is it overshadows the stuff that he really did do, which is, Tremendous, like really, really important stuff. Yeah, I think that's the saddest thing is that in creating this personal legend and then in posthumously, like with Stan now passed away, in Disney trying to carve this idea that he was some golden child who did everything himself, yeah. you rub away the reality of the whole man. And like you said, this is what I always say. I wrote I wrote an obituary for Stan Lee that I'm really proud of, uh, Esquire magazine when he passed away. And it was essentially a history of all of this stuff. And I always say, brilliant editor, unbelievable editor. A lot of what he talks about when he talks about writing, he was just editing someone else's story and giving them ideas and notes. 
He's an incredible talent spotter. Look at the people he surrounded himself with. John Buscema, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby. Also, he is also one of the original Nepo babies. They actually don't really talk about that very much. But, you know, he got his job at Marvel because of his cousin and stuff like that. So... But he's also an unbelievable advocate for comics. Like you said, he went on college tours. He made comics, they were taken seriously in an academic way for the first time because he would go and tour and he knew that there were teenagers who read this stuff. There were adults who read it. He would go on late night talk shows. He moved to Hollywood. And that's why you have TV based on comic books in the way that we understand. And all of those things are amazing. He had been working since the early 70s to try and make Marvel yeah, have an impact in TV and film. And then a lot of the stuff that we see now is because he put that flag out there in the 70s. He has his first cameo in the Marvel Universe is in one of the old Incredible Hulk TV movies. You know, this is something he was doing for a long time. Yeah. And it is sad that the controversies, which I will say he did have a big hand in creating. So it's kind of like yes. the conversation yeah. needs to be holistic and talk about what he did great and what he did wrong. And I think... The sad truth is, in this case, all Neil and his family are looking for is, where's the Jack Kirby documentary? If you have the Jack Kirby documentary that talks about all the things that Jack did, then nobody worries about the Stan Lee documentary because it wouldn't be erasing Jack. So I think it's all about equity. Even now, it's still about who created it, who's getting the credit, and who is celebrated for these stories that we all love. And I think in this case, whatever deal the Kirbys made with Disney... I think this somehow goes against that deal because Neil has generally been very supportive. They were at the Black Panther premiere. It seemed like Disney and the Kirby estate were in a good place. And this seems to go against whatever they agreed on. Yeah, I also think that, you know, listen, we're comics nerds here. This feud and story is really not one that moves beyond the bubble of comics nerds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's absolutely believable reasonable to me that very few if any people responsible for moving this documentary down the line from production to the platform had any awareness of the kind of heat that is behind this particular topic x-ray vision will be back Quick reminder, folks, that we will be live streaming our 15th anniversary of the Dark Knight retrospective episode on June 26, 7 p.m. Pacific time. Join us, Jason and Rosie, live with guests, Shay Serrano and Joelle Monique for one-of-a-kind analysis, movie lore, and much more. For live stream tickets, head to crooked.com slash x-ray live. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. And we're back. 
Moving on. To another heated topic. <laughs> to another heated topic. So uh, Secret Invasion, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, came out um, late Tuesday night. And early Wednesday morning, it emerged um, that the credit sequence, the opening credits for Secret Invasion were created in some form or fashion using AI. Here is a uh, quote from Polygon, quoting the director, Ali Salim. This is from the article from Polygon, quote, like many people, Salim says he doesn't really understand how the artificial intelligence works, but was fascinated with the ways in which AI could translate the sense of foreboding he wanted for the series. The article continues, Method Studios did not respond to Polygon's request for comment about how exactly it designed the sequence. The staff for the credits includes producers, designers, and an AI technician, but the company had previously worked on Marvel shows like Ms. Marvel, Loki, and Moon Knight, in addition to Game of Thrones, Battle of the Bastards, great episode, and yeah. For All Mankind, seasons two and three. Um, some more context from Gizmodo. While Method Studios' work on uh, those was seemingly on a more traditional side of VFX production... It was approached for Secret Invasion to instead use AI-generated imagery for use in the titles. Now, of course, there's a backlash in this. Uh, AI is a subject of a lot of heated debate because of the fears that it could, is taking creatives' jobs. I think those fears are founded. We've talked about that on this podcast. We know it's based extensively on plagiarized art, the way that they're trained. Yeah, right. And also, you know, the, the industry is in the midst of negotiating deals or, mm -hmm. you know, of a labor action with WGA in which uh, the role of AI in any kind of future deal plays a major role. Um, AI was addressed in the DGA's deal uh, that they, was struck with the AMPTP. So this is a heated topic and people feel very passionate about it. Rosie, what are your thoughts? I think this is a worrying development only in that it feels like the conversation that we have all been having on this podcast, this has really been less than a year of conversation. And I think part of the reason that the backlash has been so strong, even though, as you know, you've pointed out really well when we've been talking about this offline, is like, we don't know what the workflow is like. We don't know how the AI imagery was used. But I understand the backlash and I understand why people are worried oh, yes. because sure. this feels like it has happened incredibly quickly. From the conversation yeah. of, oh, AI might be used by studios. Now, AI has been used before by Disney as a tool to de-age people like in Indiana Jones, the new movie, right? But this is the first time that AI-generated imagery has been used in Marvel. And it is, I think, another reason the backlash has been so big. It looks a lot like what we've seen when people have used AI Things like Mid Journey, the images specifically that have been coming up. It looks like pre Mid Journey. I forget yes. what the viral what was platform was. It looks like Dolly, Dolly generated images, which is like a generation and a half behind previous to Mid Journey. And I think that is quite alarming to people because yeah. even though we don't know exactly how it was used and whether this was some VFX art that they created themselves and then did through an AI generator, whatever version it was. I think it worries people because this looks like they use something like Dali and Midjourney and that takes away from potentially yeah. jobs that could go to artists. And also there is a tradition, I would say, I think the reason this has hit so hard as a Marvel show, think about the Daredevil credit sequence. That kind of changed the game with how people saw credit sequences in prestige TV. And I think Marvel has really been a place 
where people have felt, even the She-Hulk credits that were at the end of the show mm. where it was the beautiful illustration, I think Marvel has set a precedent for artistic credit sequences that set up the tone of the show. And I think that also worries people because if the precedent is now that they're willing to use AI vendors, let's use Ali Salim's words, I think that makes people, even people who have worked on the show in VFX have come out and said they're quite upset by this choice. Yeah. Well, one one person, yeah. to be accurate. I think I saw Cartoon Brew has a really good one that has like a few different people who've come out at this point and, and talked about their kind of disappointment in it. But it's... I think it's a shame that this choice has overshadowed the show because this is the conversation about the show now. Here's where I'm at. I think that we're eventually going to get to a place. Listen, AI is coming, right? It's here, The idea yeah. is that, yeah, it's here. The idea is to place humans in a position of primacy in the workflow. If, for instance, which we don't know because we don't know how this was created yet. We haven't had a comment from Method or Marvel yet. Right. You you mentioned that AI is used for a lot of things, particularly for de-aging. If Method, which is a VFX house staffed by artists, if the artists at Method decide, well, um, you know, Marvel said they wanted something that looks like Dolly, so they decided to use some kind of AI generated imagery as like almost like a filter, you know, mm -hmm. like the way like a plug-in. And it was the human that was directing this and using it as a tool. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. And the issue of image plagiarism even to me is ameliorated by the fact that this is Marvel's imagery. This is Disney's imagery. It's not like you're not going out and taking somebody's drawing. Yeah of Nick Fury, which any which Marvel would own anyway, <laughs> and 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 plugging it into the thing and saying, okay, do it in the style of some like other person, right? Um theoretically, yeah, again, we don't theoretically, know how it works. If, if it if it's an artist making a decision to use a tool, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Yeah. Because I think that that's where we're headed. Probably the best version of where we're headed is if creatives and on the writing side, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. But on the visual side, if the visual artist decides, hey, you know what would really help here is running this through this thing and and to create this effect, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. But it's worrying and some transparency. The transparency, I think, is the issue here. Would be great. Now, the transparency on the transparency side, I also feel like. You know, what's the saying? Like, don't uh, assign to malice what can easily assign to incompetence. I think that there's a world where Disney PR was not expecting to have a heated debate about AI today, Wednesday morning, specifically around the credit sequence to Secret Invasion. And I think the kind of sloppy way that uh, Ali Salim kind of talks about the process says to me that this being a hot button topic was on nobody's radar. Mm -hmm. Nobody thought I agree that this would be an emotionally charged topic that they would all of a sudden have to have a very detailed statement about. And if I'm method, I'm now now all of a sudden you're looking at a at a situation that, where you have to coordinate your uh, comments with Disney PR, which was not a thing you have to expect. And in that sense, I think that there's probably a world in which the silence at this point is just the fact that they're like, oh, shit, we have to figure out we have to comment on this yes. now and we have to figure out what it is. That said, I would love to know how this was created. I think that there's been some great 
tweets about people just being like, we just want to know the production. We just want to know how it was produced. If, as you say, it is a tool that is being used, which is something that people have kind of been selling as one of the boons for AI for a long time, then that would actually be, like you said, the best case scenario of a studio using it. The problem is because people don't know, it's and what people yeah. do know is Dali and Midjourney, if it's an AI generator that's been trained off of stolen art, then that worries people. If it's something where this was a job that 20 people could do and now five are doing it, that worries people. And I do think really this all comes down to the way that the director chose to speak about it. Even saying things like, when we approached AI vendors... That immediately yeah. makes people go, okay, well, you're approaching people to use AI instead of just, you know, going to a studio and saying, hey, can you make this look like it, AI, but like, good. He's quoted as saying he doesn't really understand how AI works, which is, I think, a sloppy way to to comment about it. But honestly, it looks bad and it looks like it is not a thing necessarily that you should say in that way. But also, it may come as a surprise to some people, like, who aren't around the industry or it's very often that people involved in one field don't know how the other field works. we That's you know, the problem I, with the VFX issues Marvel's been having. We've ha- heard them general, say directors right? like, don't know how the VFX process like works. Like, take AI out of it. Does mm-hmm. Ali know how, like, vi- like, VFX are rendered? Maybe? Probably not. Do they know how many shots that go into one action sequence, you know, right. and how many people you need to work on it or how much time? Now... Again, we're way. I'm perfectly happy to be irate about this once we get more information. I don't. I just don't think we have it yet. And I and I will say, as a final thing, I would much prefer that though there are obviously going to be power dynamics within any company, any VFX company between workers and management, etc. I would much rather have a company of VFX workers, artists, craftspeople decide how to use AI, then studios decide how to use AI in lieu of artists. I would rather that decision come from artists rather than studios. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to get paranoid now. Now I'm going to go full paranoia to close this conversation. It's perfect for Secret Invasion. It's appropriate. It is appropriate. You know, we know a lot about how Dolly, how about how Midjourney are programmed, right? They just scraped Getty, other repositories of visual images. Deviant art, right? And that art probably contained amateur, you know, depictions of copyrighted characters. It most surely did. Mickey Mouse, et cetera, Superman, whatever. We don't quite know yet, although it's uh, stories I have read have seemed to suggest that in what is a suspicious tell like uh, that uh, Midjourney and others have like avoided scraping Disney repositories yes, and kind of like legally. big corporate repositories. It's weird to me that like Disney and other places haven't threatened to sue because their stuff is in there. And this is the same thing with the large language models, you mm-hmm. know, like this is a this has been raised, you know, like every script that's on the internet. If you go right now and be like, "Oh, I want to how did they, how, what did this, what did the shooting script for community season one, the pilot look like? Uh, let me get that. That's surely without question in the large language models yep. like ChatGPT right now. Why isn't Universal sued? Why have, if your IP is being used to train this thing, why aren't these companies being like, stop it or we own part of this? That's the part that worries me the charge to like involve this stuff without any of the seeming aggressive litigation that always mm-hmm. seems to come with an infringement 
or even a suggestion of infringement on IP. That is the part of it that worries me because, you know, if I'm going to be completely paranoid, it feels like some kind of tacit agreement. That said, um, we need to know more about this particular subject vis-a-vis the secret invasion opening credits. But it's suspicious, and I'm glad people are raising hell about it because I think it's important that mm-hmm. the platforms and these studios understand that people are very concerned about this topic yeah absolutely i totally agree also very interesting hollywood reporter just wrote a piece about how samuel l jackson had talked about ever since you know the prequels he crosses out anything about his ai likeness being used in the future so that's just kind of funny that we have this dual space especially because let's be real i saw samuel L. jackson's face in that ai so i wonder how he's feeling about secret invasion i always wondered i mean this is off topic i always wondered like how sam's reps responded to him just being straight ripped off in the ultimate okay so i this is just the room this is just the the comic shop rumor but allegedly his people just like called marvel and were like wtf Put me in this fucking movie or else. Put me in this fucking movie. That was generally, (laughs) that's generally the rule that I've heard because Sam loves comics. So they thought it would be okay. But yeah, I think that is exactly what happened. Basically, that's, that's one of those great comic book rumors. So yeah, wild stuff. And now there he is leading Secret Invasion. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's talk about Secret Invasion. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. We're stepping out of the airlock and onto the streets of Moscow, the Russian Federation, for the premiere of Secret Invasion, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Episode 1, titled Resurrection, directed by Ali Salim, written by Kyle Bradstreet and Brian Tucker. The show stars uh, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, reprising his role as Nick Fury, Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, Kingsley Benadir as Gravik, Amelia Clark as Gia, and Olivia Coleman wonderfully as Sonia Fallsworth and others. Oh, the best part of the show. Oh, there's a breath of fresh air when she arrives, but let's get into that. Okay. Mm-hmm. We open on the Mos- in Moscow, Russian Federation CIA agent Everett Ross, still employed despite the fact that he was betraying the agency to Wakanda, I think for the right reasons, but still. Correct. <laughs> Meets with an undercover agent named Prescott. Press has a theory that several... Seemingly unconnected terrorist attacks around the globe are all connected and the Skrulls are behind them. The Skrulls, the theory goes, 
were promised a homeworld by Nick Fury and Carol during the events of fucking Captain Marvel. Yeah. 30 plus years ago and in the past now. And they're fucking tired of waiting. They've been waiting too long. Three going on four decades now. Yeah. For the home world. And so they're taking action. They're sowing unrest and chaos in the world in order to undermine governments so that they can colonize earth. Ross points out that, Hey, I saw Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah, you saw Captain Marvel. There's only like 12 scrolls. Right? They were chill. They were friendly. They were chill. And most of them were kids. There was like not a lot of them. Yeah. And Prescott says, you idiot. You fool. You fool. You ignoramus. Just idiot. They can look like anyone. They, you don't even know how many there can be. And meanwhile, where's Fury? Well, this is happening. Where is he? He's disappeared. Well, apparently he's on Saber, which is the name, acronym yet to be defined. I'm going to guess it's space. Okay, I love this. I want to hear. Air, bomb, energy, something. <laughs> I don't know. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm very interested. They haven't divided it yet. I don't believe they have actually acknowledged it yet. And Marvel loves an outrageous acronym, as we know. So that'll be very exciting to see. So Fury's apparently on Saber, which is both a outer space defense agency which fury is basically spearheading and the name of the main outer space base that fury has been chilling on low these several past years this is obviously so they made sword right the sentient machine research defense organization and so now saber is basically what sword was in the comics yeah exactly that's basically how it feels which is Focused on aliens. Everett then says, well, Fury's in space and I can't go to him with some crazy theory unless you have evidence. And Prescott's like, okay, look at this tablet. And he's got this tablet that has these hologram videos and various charts and graphs on it that apparently has Ross intrigued. And so he's like, okay, I will take this tablet to Fury and we'll see what he says. And now Prescott is looking at Everett Ross like, mm, are you a scroll?" And he takes like some rubber tubing and wraps it around Everett Ross's neck and just starts choking him the fuck out because he's like, you're a scroll and you're trying to steal, steal my shit. Ross shoots the man dead and then goes fleeing through the darkened Russian streets and he soon realizes that someone's following him. He's radioing for an extraction team. The chase goes across the rooftops and then Ross ends up falling to the street like three, four stories down. Oh, it's really grim. It's like a brutal drop. Very, very far drop. His legs clearly shattered. Maria Hill arrives on the scene just then to find him there laying on the ground. And then Ross's pursuer runs up. She draws down on him. But guess what? The pursuer is Talos. <gasps> and Ross also a scroll. Okay. This is the most important question I have for you from this whole episode. Yeah, yeah. Was Ross always a scroll? I don't think so from what they show us in this episode and what we learn here. I was kind of mad when this opening happened. One, because it would be a great reveal. But two, because one of my favorite things about Secret Invasion, which I talked last episode, we always talk about, is the see Wakanda and die, which essentially establishes the idea that no scroll can get into Wakanda. Yeah. So I was like, why are they always nullifying the power of Wakanda in the MCU? But then I was like, I think this is a scroll who to get this specific information took on the visage of Ross, which means they must have captured Ross at some point. Right, they have Ross. We'll get to that. I don't think that was a scroll who was in Wakanda forever. What do you think? I don't know, but I think that is highly possible because, you know, a main plot point of 
almost every single scroll centric story and certainly the two versions of Secret Invasion, which we talked about last episode, mm-hmm. always involves the Skrulls coming up with some way that they can no longer be detected. So in Secret Invasion 1, oh. you know, all of a sudden Wolverine couldn't smell them, magic couldn't detect them, <laughs> and uh, Reed Richards' Skrull detecting shit didn't work anymore. And so like everybody's like, oh shit, the Skrulls have upped their game. In 2022's Secret Invasion, right, at the end of... The first secret of Agent Reed Richards had come up with a updated, you know, new firmware <laughs> scroll detector, right? That was installed in like every government base across the world. The CIA, the MI6, everybody had these. And of course, like the Avengers, Fantastic Four, the X-Men had these scroll detecting systems in their, mm-hmm. you know, various installations. But guess what? In that story, semi-spoiler, the scrolls have figured out how to not be detected by that anymore. And they have to go to like basically the method from John Carpenter's The Thing in which they take the blood and like microwave. (laughs) So I think it's very possible that the Skrulls have figured out how to beat Wakandan Skrull detection. Mm. And it makes a lot of sense to me that it's a win for Skrull agents to get access to Wakanda and be involved with decision-making at the highest level of Wakandan government. Also, if the Skrull rebellion, as it is being shown in this premiere, is sick of like humans on Earth and the way they've treated the Skrull refugees, that could also explain why Everett Ross was surprisingly <laughs> sympathetic and compassionate to the Wakandans when everyone was like, who's this CIA agent? Why would they care? Well, he turned on the American government. He turned on his ex-wife. This could explain it. I I like that. I like that. I like that reading. I'll just say it's possible. I think it's very, very possible that he's been a squirrel potentially for several movies, which would be so crazy. Um, Elsewhere, guess who's back on Earth? Maybe it's Nick Fury. Whoa, Nick Fury. Where's he been? What's he been up to? He's been in Saber. He's been in space. <laughs> a dropship lands in Russia and uh, Nick Fury gets off. His knee is a little balky. He's dressed very shabbily, I think purposefully shabbily. He loves to do this when he goes on the run, wear a watchman's cap and like a bedraggled like mm-hmm. car coat. <laughs> And he looks a little older, and that's going to be a major theme of this episode and probably this series is, has Nick lost his fastball? Yes. Has Nick lost it? Nick goes to meet Talos. We learn that Talos' partner, Soren, has died off screen sometime previous to this story. As you do when you're a wife in the MCU or in any superhero story. (laughs) As you do when you're a wife in the MCU and as you do when you're an actor that somehow didn't sign the five, six, seven, eight, nine picture deal because they didn't think they'd need you, which is probably what happened. Right? Sorry to that Soren. Um, sorry to that Soren. So Nick is like, I'm so sorry about Soren and you know, how are you? And Taylor says that Soren was apparently worried around the time of her death about a thing that's happening right now, which is the rise of scroll nationalism, scroll nationalist extremists who are like, hey, I'm tired of Nick Fury dragging his feet for 35 years for us to get a homeworld, and we're looking to create something for ourselves right now. And the Skrull Nationalist is named Gravik, and apparently Nick Fury has some history with Gravik, and of course, Talos does too. Apparently, Talos' daughter, uh, Gia, 
is part of Gravik's cause now, and Talos himself was kicked off the Skrull governing council, and Gravik took his place. And his message is really resonating with these disaffected Skrull youths who, you know, were born during this time or shortly before the time of the alliance with humans. And apparently Gravik has set up these kind of like mini scroll bases slash colonies in Russia because Russia has all of these decommissioned nuclear power plants that are just like teeming with radiation. Think Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. And scrolls. Uh, have no problem with that kind of radiation. They just li- happily live there. For those who are going to be looking for who's a scroll, I feel like this feels like a good test of like if you want to know who a scroll is going to be in this world. Sadly, I don't think we're going to get my pickle and strawberry tell that I was hoping for. This does not seem like the comedic space for that. But I do think if in future episodes of this six episode series, if you see somebody who's chill with some radiation who's a human or doesn't seem to be wearing a mask or is setting off a little Geiger counter or whatever, you're probably looking at a scroll. I think yeah. this feels very much like they're foreshadowing the importance of this idea that scrolls are not impacted by radiation. You ready for this? Yelena. Oh! Everybody from Russia, as far as I am concerned right now, is a, is a major, major suspect for being a scroll. I'm talking Natasha. I'm talking every, I'm talking her whole family. <laughs> we never saw her hit the ground when she dropped off for me. <laughs> we never saw her hit the ground. I'm, talking, I'm dead serious, though. All of them. Oh, my gosh. The whole red god that just scrolls. The green god. We need to think about it. I would love to see Elena come back. So I'm saying, I like this is like the unexpected xenophobia. I know, right? Scrolls. Like everyone who's Russian is a scroll now. <laughs> okay. So Prescott's intel was about what Gravik's plan is. And apparently his plan is to foment a war between the U.S. and Russia by setting off dirty bombs, which will then be blamed, I guess, on the U.S. And long term, Gravik wants to make the planet uninhabitable for humans. Radiation would certainly do the trick. And then guess what? Baby scrolls are riding high. We cut to Washington, D.C., where James Rhodey Rhodes out of his suit, walking quite well without any kind of seeming lasting effects. Doesn't have his cool suit anymore or anything. Is now an undefined high-ranking member of, it seems like the Defense Department. He might be the National Security Advisor. He's working for the president, who I'm going to say is definitely a scroll. Oh, listen. Just just want to put that out there. I'm like, I'm like 100% sure this Dermot Mulroney, one of my all-time favorite actors. I'm pretty sure you're a scroll, bro. Just putting it out there. So he's like, he updates the president, Dermot Mulroney, President Mulroney, <laughs> that Nick Fury is a wall from Sabre. Hmm. Nick Fury was not allowed to leave Sabre, the base, and he has left. And more worryingly, right before he left, he got an encrypted message from his old... Oh, pal. ...fucking collaborator, Maria Hill. You can't trust those two together. And who knows what they're up to. And so POTUS is just like, deal with it. That's all he says is deal with it. This is another question I have after this episode, right? So like... Yeah. Poor old Nick Fury. Anne-Marie Hill. So these two are still working for the American government after S.H.I.E.L.D. was revealed to be Nazis for like 60 years. Seems like a major failure. Seems like a failure. I'm like, bro, 
Saber, Sam, I feel I, I felt like Nick kind of set that up with the scrolls, like it was his own thing, like he'd learned his lesson. And now I'm like, the president's in charge of this? This seems like a mistake. Doesn't that track, isn't that one of the most realistic <laughs> things about, about the MCU? This tracks so much. Because you're right, yeah. because they fell for it with S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Nazis, and now they fell for it with Saber and the Scrolls. So you're right. Actually, 100% makes sense. Great storytelling, great foreshadowing. <laughs> Back in Russia, Fury is just out for a walk. Talos is like, you're a, you're a black guy in Moscow at night. Like, everyone's going to be <laughs> looking at you, noticing you, and he's like, don't worry about it. Don't do it. Clearly, Fury is looking to provoke a reaction. He gets it. He's scooped up by some black ops team and he's taken to meet Sonya, hmm. an MI6 big shot, who is also trying to quash the nascent Skrull Rebellion. As Sonya, of course, as we mentioned, played by Olivia Coleman, And it's like a ray of sunshine as soon as she arrives in the show. It's like, what if Mary Poppins was a nightmarish spy master? Yeah. She brings the energy wonderful. that she had in Peep Show somehow. It's just, it's so good. For me, this was the moment that the show like lit up. Yeah. I want to see her and Sam together are so brilliant. Like, I almost want this to be a two-hander that focuses on them. And I hope we get more because it just doesn't change the tone. The show is inherently grim and gritty that's just where we're at and i'm accepting it because the original secret invasion comic was so bombastic and silly and out there and i know that's not what we're getting but this moment brings so much light and fun and their banter and their chemistry i definitely felt i was like is this gonna be that relationship that nick has in his past because obviously in the comics that's Valentina, you know, and they changed that hair and made her Everett oh, Ross's wow, yeah. ex-wife. So I was like, yeah. maybe these two are that weird, like, spy master romance. I just thought they were so good together. And she is, she's this great mix of, like... Yeah, she's fantastic. Would make you a cup of tea, but it definitely has arsenic in it. But you'd still want to drink the tea. Like, it's this cozy, cruelty, this Mary Poppins, Hannibal Lecter. I don't know. She was just, I love her so much in everything, but she is so good. This episode and potentially this series seems very influenced by the first Mission Impossible movie. Yes. And, you know, Olivia Coleman's Sonia reminds me so much of Max. Mm-hmm. The kind of like independent. Oh, that's a really good call. Intelligence broker that is like constantly flirting and charming and cajoling everybody around her in this wonderful like light touch way that kind of belies the seriousness of what she's doing and that's kind of the, the olivia coleman move here and it's wonderful man first mission impossible movie what a movie brian de palma loved that movie wonderful movie and and a lot of the kind of looks and little, mm -hmm. little paranoia engines that are used here the way nick notices people staring at him on the street a romantic couple mm. You know, the woman, they're kissing, but then the woman like looks at him out of the corner of her eye and, and it just, all of these moves are straight out of Mission Impossible 1. That's such a brilliant call as well, because what does Mission Impossible have that's such a key part of that first film and then takes on that technology? Is that technology where you can wear a mask that changes your face? The mask. The masks, baby. Right. And that is essentially scrolls. Because the scrolls can change whoever they are. And that is more what we're seeing here is the scrolls almost using it as like a Mr. Smith-esque matrix technology where it doesn't work that way. They still have to kidnap the humans, but yeah. they're not necessarily instilled in that deep cover way that we expected them to be from the comics. This seems a little bit more like a, 
a newer invention, a newer idea that they're doing. And it is kind of that that mask, you know, it's just when you need it. But yeah, she's so good. So Nick wants to know if Sonia knows anything about this raid in Kazakhstan in which nuclear material was stolen. And she says she doesn't know anything about it. And she also says, very pointedly, one, hinting at Nick's previous relationship with Gravik, that she thinks that Nick is in part responsible for Gravik's rise. And furthermore, she thinks that Nick shouldn't be involved in this. Look at you. You're limping. You can barely walk around. You're older. You've been in space. You lost a step. You don't know what's going on. Everyone's saying that to Nick in this story. He's tired and they're all telling him, you are tired. You're not up to this. And they might be right. They might be right. Nick is like, okay, fine. Well, listen, if you hear anything, uh, let me know. I'm going for a walk again. We go to somewhere in the forest, you know, probably like around a nuclear power plant. (laughs) Just guessing. Just guessing. A scroll in human form walks up to the gates. He's looking for, quote, home in my own skin, which is like the passcode, right? Yeah. Passphrase for Gravik's organization. And he is met by Gia, Talos's daughter, who welcomes him to New Skrullos. And she's got great news for this Skrull, whose name is Beto. Everything here in New Skrullos is like 100% by Skrulls for Skrulls. We got Skrull produce. Natural Skrull. We got Skrull wine. We got Skrull drinks. Here's a weird Skrull fruit. Enjoy it. All the stuff you loved as a natural born scroll growing up, you can enjoy once again. And as you mentioned, like look in the glove box and there's like this big scroll like eggplant <laughs> that Beto just bites into and is obviously so delighted to be eating. It's like neon blue. It looks terrible, but he loves it. He loves it. We learned that there's about 500 scrolls living here right now, and it certainly looks very populated. Then they look to be of all ages or adults, kids. Gia then recruits Beto basically to work as an agent for Gravik, to work in the field, a warrior, they call them. And warriors, the thing with warriors is they have to stay in human form so that they can more effectively pass as human. And we learn that they call these human form shells. And the shells are acquired by horrifically kidnapping people The scroll then gets the physical attributes and then immediately transforms. The memories of the person are then extracted using some kind of scroll technology and implanted in the scroll so they know all the things that the person knows. And then the person is kept in this kind of horrific stasis Uh prison where we would imagine that Everett Ross is somewhere in this prison. Yes, more than likely. And it's a very interesting... And hilarious reveal because it's like, oh, they stay in human form. It's including Amelia Clark. Of course she does. That's Amelia Clark. You want her to be in her form. You want you want her to look like that. Yeah, we paid a lot of money for Amelia Clark. But yeah, this is very interesting. We meet some other scrolls. If you are a fan of the Secret Invasion comic books, you may have been like, oh, Pagan, that's a big deal. That's like the biggest, mm-hmm. you know, character that we've met so far from the comics. In the comics, he's Queen Varanki's lover and also most famously he was Electra for a very long time in the marvel universe a very fucking long time a very long time (laughs) since maybe 1982 83 (laughs) 
yeah, like I'm saying, look, in my brain, my brain's immediately like, whoa, Pagan, he replaced Electra and he was ultimately killed by Echo, yeah. Maya Lopez. So, you know, maybe he's going to become Electra and then he's going to be in the Daredevil show. And then, you know, Maya Lopez is going to kill him. That is what my theory brain says. I'm just going to tell you, that's not going to happen. That is not a we were right. Yeah, this is Pagan. You know, I think he's played by Killian Scott. I think he's going to be a more grounded kind of henchy yeah. for Gravik. We've had no inklings of Varanki yet, but it will be interesting to see where it goes. And it's fun to see them do that thing they've started to do in the MCU TV more where they put in a name there that makes you think it could be something. But that was a fun one. So yeah, Gravik, he's been busy. He's been very, very busy. This is a very big setup he has going on here. And they're not treating humans particularly well. No, it's very, very scary. Back at the safe house... Talos Hill and Fury watch a video feed from a bug that Fury very smartly planted in Sonya's office. And they watch her just ripping an underling to absolute fucking shreds for not being up to snuff on, you know, various things that she's asking for. And through this purloined conversation, they learn that there is this Chechen rebel named Vasily who... Sonya thinks is probably the best bet for the person the scrolls are using to acquire the bombs, the bomb material, and to assemble the bombs that they want to use in their mission. So Fury's like, great, we have a target. Let's go after Vasily. Fury wants to find Gravik before Sonya's people do. And he thinks this is very important. He stresses his talos because, listen, here's the difference between me and Sonya. I love cooperating one of the cool things about the talos fury relationship is you can really tell that they are close it feels like they've been friends for 30 years it does there's a real like deep emotional bond mendelssohn and jackson sell it they sell it really well but sonia on the other hand she just has no personal connections with scrolls and she would personally like to see all scrolls off of earth gone and you get the inkling that she's not really that picky about how we do it. <laughs> like, she just wants them gone. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that they find Gravik, Nick stresses, because we're going to want to smooth things over with the scrolls that we can bring back onto our side. So news that Fury is on Earth reaches Gravik. Gravik is semi-concerned. Gia is then sent to make the deal with Vasily for the bomb. She finds Vasily at his art studio, makes the deal, walks away with the bomb. Fury and Talos are just a few minutes late. They do a bad cop, bad cop, in which Nick Fury threatens to, like, shoot all of Vasily's belongings. And Talos <laughs> just decides, well, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. But fucking surprise, Vasily is a scroll also. Uh, and they really have it out with Talos telling Nick, you can't get involved, don't get involved, let me deal with this. Yeah, just let me deal with it. Let me do it, but then Talos is kind of getting his ass kicked, and so Nick has to shoot the scroll that was pretending to be Vasily, and Talos, who's clearly dealing with a lot of complex emotions about betraying his people and collaborating mm -hmm. with humans and the fact that his family's been torn apart by this, his wife's been murdered, by, and now here he is fighting a Skrull who maybe he was saying don't get involved so that he could take the Skrull in alive and now the Skrull has been murdered by a human while he was there. Yeah, it feels definitely to me like they're setting up a potential conflict or split here with the loyalty between Talos and the feelings he has towards 
Nick, but also his relationship with his daughter. And that moment where he's devastated that Nick Fury shot this scroll and killed him, that feels like it could be a crack that may turn into a chasm. Obviously, what Gravik is doing is horrific and needs to be stopped. But you would imagine that there's no way it feels good for Talos to have Mm -mm. his native people tell him that he has sold them out. Yeah, and also as well, I think this was always going to be a problem that came with the representation that they chose to do of the scrolls, which in, in Captain Marvel was this idea that they were these kind of like peaceful refugees. In the Marvel comics, they are generally like your go-to bad villains who aren't, you know, human Nazis. An empire, yeah. They're an empire, and there are obviously people within the scroll empire who are good people. It's a complex, nuanced thing. But to introduce them as essentially refugees of a war and then in now have to establish the idea that some of those refugees are terrorists, this was always going to be a hard yeah. play, I think. And and it's going to be interesting to see how they build it out. Obviously, they're lucky because Kingsley Benadir is like an incredibly talented actor. So I'm sure Gravik is going to bring a lot of gravitas to this role. But yeah, I always think that was going to be a, yeah. a hard thing to sell. And the route that they're going is definitely the more serious and complex take on it. Which I like. So I should mention that while uh, Nick and Talos were going to see Vasily, Hill was out in the car and she happens to see Gia walking past. So she follows her down to a tunnel and the two fight, but Skrulls are way stronger than humans. So Hill kind of gets her her, uh, clock cleaned. (laughs) And Gia goes on the run with Talos following right behind. The father and daughter confront each other. Gia doesn't want to hand over the bomb. Talos is like, well, this is a really weird way to tell you this, but I have some news. Your mother is dead. Her last words were, find Gia, which is, again, a crazy way to learn that your mom died. And then Talos is like, can we just like talk? And Gia rebuffs him and she goes on the run. Fury uh, goes to a bar where he meets Hill and they finally like have a talk that they should have had probably two days prior where she gets to ask him, you know, why did you leave Saber? And he's like, well, one, you called me. And two, because I was having a crisis of faith and that crisis of faith carried over to my work at Saber. And then he clearly feels a responsibility to the Skrulls and to Talos and his inability to follow through in a homeland for them is kind of a major factor in what's going on right now, like in a really significant way. Mm-hmm. And Hill says, well, listen, I only called you because Talos wanted you. <laughs> She's like, I didn't want you here. <laughs> I didn't want you here because guess what? You're not ready for this, Fury. You were never the same after the blip, she says. Agreeing, though she doesn't know it, with Sonya. Mm-hmm. And again, you have to wonder if she's right. We, we then see Fury late at night, like reliving the moment of the blip. His hand turning to ash, eventually his whole body turning to ash as he drifts away. I'm very interested in this, actually. Talos, you know, he keeps telling Fury, you disappeared, you disappeared, you know, you were never the same. So does Maria Hill, she knows he got blipped, right? So he was gone for five years then, and then he went up to Sabre. I feel like people are not really, like, giving Nick a lot, like, enough credit for the fact, you know, he was blipped and then, like, you know, the world was saved and everyone got unblipped and then he's up in space trying to protect. Everyone's like, where have you been? It's like, where was half the world? They got blipped and now he's up in space. I kind of perceive this as, yes, of course Nick got blipped, but the fact that as soon as you got, 
snapped, mm-hmm. you then left Earth to go to space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we needed you here when, yeah. We needed you. And, and clearly the suggestion is, what Hill is kind of like, and what Sonia is kind of beating on the bush with is, you were heavily traumatized by the blip. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you didn't know anything when you were blipped, but when you came back and the gravity of what had occurred hit you, it's probably still hitting you. You're probably still processing it and you need to deal with it because it's heavily affecting your ability to do the job that you're trying to do. Yeah. And I think that's what everybody's basically saying to him is like, we want to help you. We're your friends. You went to fucking space. How are we supposed to help you? Yeah, like where were you? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good call. I also wonder, it feels like this there's a lot of weight being put on this idea that he's not yeah. the same. He's not got the same strength. He's I wonder how much of that is gonna play into a change that is more significant. I don't think that he is a scroll. I don't think he's one of those cases. I don't think it's anything like that. But you know, Nick Fury's very old. In the comics, he's essentially immortal. Here, he looks much older. I wonder if there is some kind of connection here to him aging faster or being ill or actually, you know, the blip affecting him in a a more permanent way than it did other people. I'll be very interested to see. Obviously, the biggest impact this is going to have as this series goes on is going to be Nick Fury showing everyone that he is, in fact, back. Yeah. Like John Wick. And they're all wrong. That's clearly the route they're going. But yeah, I found that. I was like, please give this man a break. I was like, do you know how the blip was pretty hardcore, man? (laughs) I will say that I I find myself with regards to the way this episode ends. Yes. On rewatch, like looking for clues that Nick's playing possum. They're doing a really good job of selling Nick being older, potentially over the hill, traumatized by the events of the blip, not on his A game. But it's hard to escape because this is Nick Fury. It is hard to escape the idea that, of course, Nick wants his enemies thinking that he doesn't have it. To think that, right? And he's just come back from space. Suddenly he's got a limp. He's looking a little bit rough and tumbled. He really played up the limp. Oh, oh, my knee. (laughs) He's playing it. Yeah. Oh, oh, exactly. Like, I I think you're right. I think think it's at least partially a play, especially because he doesn't really fight back. When these women in his life are saying that to him. Gia brings the bomb to Gravik's people and they're like, great job. She tells them that, hey, just so you know, human security forces know about us because someone tried to intercept me. But then very interestingly, she lies and says, I don't know who it was. I didn't recognize the person. But of course, it was Maria Hill and her dad. Later, Gia secretly meets with her dad. He finally tells her, shock of shocks, that it was Gravik who killed her mom off screen. And she tells him in return that, guess what? That big bombing is happening tomorrow. There's three devices and Gravik knows you're onto him. There'll be like a hundred Skrull agents around. It's going to happen in a park and I'll mark the bombs with this infrared spray so you can see it. They set up the sting operation in the park with Hill, Fury, and Talos watching Gia. Who knows how many Skrull agents are all around. Immediately, things get mixed up, and the bombs are now heading in various directions, carried by various people. Everybody splits up. Fury, we mentioned how when Fury was on his walk, right, he ran into, like, all these different people who were different levels of suspicious, and one of them was this girl Mm -hmm. in this very colorful outfit with this beautiful rainbow-colored ball that kind of, like, stumbled into his path and then moves away he sees that girl again and he knows 
scroll. Yeah, and it seems like the implication here, which would be a big change, but I think is something we'd guessed before, it kind of seems like the implication is she is Gravik and Gravik can maybe change between bodies. Yeah. Because it kind of seems like Nick is following one person and as he follows them, the girl disappears and then it's a man and then the next person is a woman. Now, he is always someone else walks in front. So there's a chance it could be a trick of yeah. kind of the light or like a, a trick of perception. But my read here was like, this is the same girl. The scrolls are on Tim and potentially... That could be Gravik, who has this kind of ability we haven't seen before with scrolls. I thought that as well. And, and you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, I think the super scrolls are going to be introduced here. I think we're going to get... I do. They'll just do it a different way. They'll do it a different way. I think we'll get scrolls that can be multiple forms of things at once. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the scrolls are clearly on to this counterintelligence sting. Hill discovers the backpack she was following was empty and things just happen really quickly after that. Fury sees Gravik trigger the bombs. They go off. There's huge chaos in this park. A scroll disguised as Nick Fury shoots Hill and she very potentially dies in his arms. And the real Nick Fury having no other option flees. And that is how the episode ends. Is Hill dead? She's done this before, by the way, playing dead. I think if she is dead, it's a big mistake on the MCU's part. I don't think it will land very well. I would say it also wouldn't make sense. She's quite a major player in different ways in the 2022 Secret Invasion and the original Secret Invasion. But knowing the MCU, I think back to the treatment of Black Widow, a character I wasn't even particularly that fond of in uh, the famous Marvel event movie Avengers Endgame. I think she's probably dead. I think this is a classic case of fridging. You think she's dead? That's my feeling. You give Nick a very important reason to keep fighting. And also, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the scroll, kind of proving our point here, or at least introducing a new power, I believe it's Gravik who is disguised as Nick Fury and shoots Maria, which again adds another reason for Nick Fury to have conflict with Gravik. Plus, that is a scroll power that we have yet to understand because Nick Fury has not been taken and hidden in their little magic pods. So that's a powerful choice. Right. I think she's alive. I think this is a classic reverse winter soldier Nick Fury move. Ooh, like an LMD situation. You know, when he's like in uh, Steve's apartment and he oh. gets <laughs> shot and then dies in air quotes. I think we're just... I think it's just another one of these where Hill is now the one pretending to be dead so that the scrolls can think that they are on the front foot. Oh, and then they think Nick is alone. Oh, that's pretty good. That's a long game plan. I like it. This is just looking at Nick Fury's history. It would not surprise me at all. That would be from the Nick Fury playbook. Any other scroll predictions now that we've seen? Again, I will go on record as saying I think everybody based in Russia for any period of time <laughs> needs to be looked at as a potential scroll. Yelena, I'm looking at you. Okay, in that case, let's talk about the one that could be their big reveal, 
Bucky always a scroll. I would love it. Well, you know what else as well? So that one of my favorite things about Secret Invasion, there are some scrolls who are scrolls for so long. They forgot. That they actually start to believe that they are that person. That could play into the relationship he had with Steve. That could all be real. That would be very cool. That would play into your Russia theory. I think this is going to play more heavily into that 2022 Secret Invasion miniseries you were talking about. I think the president is surely a scroll. <laughs> I think this is going to be people in high placements. I think, you know, maybe, maybe Rhodey, I guess, because he is up there as well in that space. But I think that it's going to be more like that. I don't think we're going to get any of those big reveals. I sadly don't think Hawkeye is a scroll, which has been my 10 year theory that I've been arguing at every website I write at. But my big theory that I do think, so we get a really cool thing. Right. This episode, which is no eye patch for Nick Fury. I love it. It's a great aesthetic. It's very cool. But to me, it feels very important. And when he puts the little bug in Sonya's room, he puts it on the same eye. It's the left eye of the owl, the left eye of his eye. In the comics, sorry to everyone who listens to this podcast because I always talk about him. 3D man has the glasses. He can see who's a scroll. I think the more grounded version of that that we're going to get is... Samuel L. Jackson's eye that was, you know, scratched by a flurkin, I think that's going to give him the ability at some point to see scrolls or sense them. It's not going to be crazy. It's not going to be 3D man. But there's something about this left eye being able to see it. I think he is essentially going to take on that role as the person who can find a way, train himself or, or activate something with him so he can sense who the scrolls are. And he will essentially then be that lone voice of reason that nobody else believes the paranoid but right conspiracy theorist yeah very interesting now in uh captain america winter soldier right the end the climax of that film hinges in part on natasha's use of really really high-tech like facial scrambling technology that allowed her to yes 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 very famous jenny agatha face mask yeah that allowed her to, to pose as a <laughs> member of the council so we know that humans have this similar technology. Hmm. I'm going to get crazy for one second. I want to hear it. Nick Fury, no eye patch and limping. Who has a leg injury famously in the MCU? Leg braces for a period of oh. time, although it didn't seem. Oh! oh, what if they are flipped? What if Rhodey is... Sam is... Ah! Yeah, Nick is pretending to be Rhodey. And Rhodey... And Rhodey is pretending pretending to to be be Nick. Nick. I would love to see it. I love that. I think that could be so cool. Also, you make a great point. If that technology is not in this miniseries, I will eat my hat. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. That is the human... It's gotta be. That's the human way of mixing and messing up the scrolls, the way that they do to us. That's such a great call. God, I would love that. That's my, I, I, I'm into it now. That's, that's my head cannon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I can't wait to uh, see what happens next. We'll be following this, uh, this series as it progresses. Up next, Nerd Out. Warning. The following Nerd Out contains big spoilers. Big, big, big spoilers. Big, 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 For the big, 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 big. season two finale of Yellow Jackets. Be warned. In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, a theory you're excited to share, or a quick question that we can answer, Cody offers a rebuttal. I would say Cody adds support to Coach Ben's 
actions from the Yellow Jacket season two finale. Do you want to read it? You should read it. Yeah. Loving all the deep dives this year. I have to say, I think Coach Ben made the smart move burning down Camp Yellow Jacket. That is a controversial take, Cody, but I'm here for it. Let's listen. To begin, he should should he have reinforced the doors better and locked them inside? Yes, I agree. If you're going to do it, don't let them escape. <laughs> but he can't just go up with a hammer and nail and board up the windows and doors. He's working with one leg and no hammer. And they'll hear him. The murder cannibal cult girls definitely have some difficulty getting out the cabin as it unfolds. And they are all asleep until Shauna wakes them up. Prompt one. Does Shauna save the girls from burning up after a Harvey-induced food coma? Is the fact that she is upstairs journaling and being perfectly petty? Are you there, wilderness? It's me, Shauna. The reason the girls didn't die from smoke inhalation or not wake up until it was too late. Yes, I think... I love that. I love that. Yes, I think if Shauna yeah, wasn't I think that's writing case. her ridiculous why wasn't it me journal, I think you're right. I think they would all die. <laughs> and I actually... That was what I was going to say. I do think Ben probably could have hammered and nailed and no one would have noticed except for little dear diary shauna yes and he's gonna say finally cody says the one other thing i will say in defense of coach ben's plan is that the girls could easily die of exposure without the cabin one more blizzard a few nights of exposure in the open air with no fireplace dunzo it's a solid plan cody said these girls are gonna die ben's gonna be fine it's a solid plan in bad circumstances to deal with it must be said again He is dealing with a self-created cult of murder cannibals. (laughs) All that said, I mean, mean, what do you think? I think that's very fair to Coach Ben, and I think that's probably right. Listen, he has no good options and no allies. So uh, everything that he has to do, he's got to do on his own initiative. Certainly it could, he's absolutely right, it could still work. They could die of exposure. There's, There's not a ton, like there's not enough space in the tree for everybody, <laughs> you know? <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, no, I love it. And Cody finishes with a perfect line. Ben is not making it out of the wilderness. If you come for the antler queen, you better not miss. And ain't that the truth about Yellow Jacket? So I think Ben is done. But you know what? I understand his motivations. Cody, you did a great job selling us. It's okay to murder teenagers if they're cannibal murder teens stuck in a forest. I mean, I think that that's fair. Like, you, you would... Any right-thinking person would naturally be terrified for their life at all yes, times. Yes, I agree. Thank you, Cody. If you have theories, passions, or quick questions that you want to share, hit us up at xray at crooked.com. Instructions in the show notes. Well, that's it for us. Rosie, any plugs? Just that we have a live show coming up. So tell everyone all about that because that's yes. really cool and we want to make sure everyone gets to enjoy it. Well, first, our next episode of X-Ray Vision will be on June 28th, and that is our live episode. We're taping it on June 26th. Uh, If you're in L.A., please come if you're available. If you're not or you can't make it to the site, there's a live stream. And information for that will be at crooked.com slash X-Ray Live. You can buy your tickets to join the live stream. And the topic of conversation is going to be the 15th anniversary of the sequel to Batman Begins, the famous the Dark Knight. Ever heard of it? Ever heard of it? Heath Ledger's iconic turn as the Joker, and we're pleased to announce it. Two of our special guests at this time, uh, Shea Serrano, <gasps> noted uh, multi-time New York Times best-selling author, showrunner, and creator of uh, Primo on Amazon Prime, uh, and Joelle Monique, noted uh, comics and pop culture figure. 
Uh, go to crooked.com slash x-ray live to get your live stream tickets. And if you want to watch us before then, subscribe on YouTube. We got full episodes up there and check out our Discord. You can join, hang out and meet with a bunch of cool fans and me and Jason pop in there once in a while. Five star ratings, five, five, five star five, reviews. Five, 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 five. We need them. We got to have them. You got to give them to us. Here's one from Emily K. A weekly must. Love this pod. Historically not a comic reader, so getting insights into nerd stuff from the comics is great and inspiring to pick up more comics and find a curse. Thank you, Emily Thank you, K. Emily. We'll see you next time. Bye. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin and executive produced by me, Jason Concepcion. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Video production by Delon Villanueva and Rachel Gajewski. Social media by Awa Okalati and Caroline Dunphy. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme today. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.